Nuclear heroes. Those who oppose nuclear in all its various forms are a growing group of staunch individuals who dedicate some portion of our lives to turning around the insane push to increase all things nuclear, be it weapons, power reactors, uranium mining, highly radioactive waste, or any of the processes necessary to support and manage them. But few people have had the impact of a tiny nun who in 2012, at the age of 82, joined with two associates and easily broke into the United States' Fort Knox of uranium to stage a peaceful protest against nuclear weapons. As for her reasons for taking an action that resulted in her being imprisoned for two and a half years, Sister Megan Rice explained, Renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime, we're all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. She makes it sound so simple and logical that when you hear a call to action like that, from a woman like that, it's possible to think that maybe we can join together to eliminate this seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a commemoration of the life of Sister Megan Rice, who passed away on October 10th at the age of 91 of congestive heart failure. A longtime peace activist, she is best known for the 2012 Transform Now Plowshares action where she and two associates easily broke into Y-12, the Oak Ridge, Tennessee site of what was supposed to be the U.S.'s heavily guarded Fort Knox of uranium, a national security asset. We'll share an interview recorded just after Sister Rice was released from prison, having served two and a half years for what the government called sabotage. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Steve Bannon could ever be bothered to share. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 26, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off here in the U.S., where potassium iodide pills are going to be distributed to people near the Perry Nuclear Power Plant in case of a nuclear accident. This would be in Ohio, 40 miles northeast of Cleveland. 
For those of you who don't know, potassium iodide is a non-prescription medication that can protect the thyroid from radioactive iodine if taken within three to four hours of the start of exposure to a nuclear accident. And note that it is only good against radioactive iodine and not any of the other radionuclides that are released when a nuclear reactor starts behaving badly. So while it's good for the thyroid, do not be tricked into thinking that this is an overall protection from all things nuclear, because it is not. The Eastern Navajo Diné against uranium mining, or ENDOM, has filed additional observations and additional testimony on the merits of the case of ENDOM et al. versus the United States of America for alleging violations of human rights regarding the issuance of a license to mine uranium in the Crown Point and Church Rock communities which are on Navajo Nation land. Jonathan Perry, ENDOM director, said... The filing is crucial for the protection of Diné communities, the people, our homeland, and culture. We will stand for our human rights and not allow our value as indigenous people to be diminished. The federal government must realize that we are not disposable and that water is life. In Wyoming, that state is weighing plans to host a multi-billion dollar demonstration, so-called nuclear power plant, Terra Power's natrium reactor. The long history of similar nuclear reactors, dating back to 1951, indicates that Wyoming is likely to be left with a nuclear lemon on its hands. This is from an article published by Arjun Makajani, who is president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, and M. V. Ramana, who is professor and Simon's chair in disarmament, global, and human security, and director of the Liu Institute for Global Issues at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. The natrium reactor design uses molten sodium as a coolant as opposed to water, which is used in most existing commercial reactors, and it's likely to be problematic. In Japan, a sodium fire within the first months of a reactor starting led to Japan's Manju demonstration reactor being shut down. The French Super Phoenix, which was the largest sodium-cooled reactor, was plagued by operational problems, including a major sodium leak, and was shut down in 1998 after 14 years, having operated at an average capacity of under 7%. In other words, this design is definitely a lemon. We will link to the article by Makajani and Romana on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 540. Two articles we will link to by Dr. Paul Dorfman. He is an academic at the UCL Energy Institute, University College London, and chair of the Nuclear Consulting Group. Both articles deal with nuclear's vulnerability to climate change and state that present and planned coastal and inland nuclear installations will be at significant risk. One of the articles, which looks at risks both in the UK and the United States, cites the UK Institute of Mechanical Engineers, which says that UK nuclear coastal installations, together with their spent nuclear fuel and radioactive waste stores, are vulnerable to sea level rise, flooding, storm surge, and what they call nuclear islanding. In other words, waters from flooding rising so high that they surround a nuclear site and make it inaccessible by roads. Perhaps alarmingly, 
They point out that these U.S. coastal nuclear sites could be relocated or even abandoned. And keep this point in mind when listening to this week's Numbnuts of the Week. In the United States, the Pentagon reports that 79 military bases will be affected by rising sea levels and frequent flooding, including 23 nuclear installations, strategic radar stations, nuclear command centers, missile test ranges, and ballistic missile defense sites, seven of which store nuclear weapons on site. Similarly, the U.S. Army War College says nuclear facilities are at high risk of temporary or permanent closure due to climate threats, with 60-60% of U.S. nuclear capacity vulnerable to major risks, including sea level rise and severe storms. But try telling the left hand what the right hand knows, because in this example of nuclear boneheadedness, we have... Nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's week. Such nuclear myopia. This week, the Biden administration released four separate reports on how climate change threatens U.S. national security and will likely create conflict around the globe. These included a report on migration, the National Intelligence Estimate, and separate analyses from the Defense Department and the Department of Homeland Security. And how many times do they mention anything nuclear? Just once, as in, some of the countries most vulnerable to climate change, like India and Pakistan, are nuclear powers. Climate catastrophes might jeopardize the security of their weapons. Yeah, but what about right here in the good old USA? In case you haven't noticed, the United States is a nuclear power, and climate catastrophes might jeopardize the security of our weapons. And then there's the potential flooding of coastal nuclear reactors from sea level rise. See Fukushima to understand what that can lead to. And then there's the possibility of dam overflow flooding from torrential rains and dam failures upstream of nuclear reactors that could flood out emergency cooling systems. Again, if you want to understand what that means, see Fukushima. And then there is this finding. More powerful storms and more frequent flooding are threatening military preparedness. Domestic bases like Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida and Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina have already endured billions of dollars worth of damage, and sea level rise in the Pacific jeopardizes key, quote, warfighting infrastructure. Well, we can't have anything damaging our ability to make war, can we? All of which goes to show that when it comes to nuclear dangers created by climate change, The current administration in Washington has just as big a blind spot as the previous ones. And that's why Biden administration and all those reports on climate change and national security, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. As I said, we will link to the two articles by Dr. Paul Dorfman that contradict this numbnutsery. And here's a Numbnuts adjacent story. A recent incident at a National Institute of Standards and Technology reactor is linked to staff turnover. The incident occurred on February 3rd, 
but was only submitted in a report to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on October 1st. What happened last February is that the reactor at the NIST Center for Neutron Research in Gaithersburg, Maryland, released radiation into the surrounding facility. According to the report, during a routine refueling operation, inexperienced staff members failed to identify an improperly secured fuel element that caused that element to overheat and deform. In other words, inadequate training and licensing of operators was one of several factors that contributed to the accident. In the usual nuclear, the dog ate my homework excuse, NIST whines that the reactor is refueled manually and hands-on experience is needed to ensure that certain steps of the process are performed properly. But turnover has led to a decline in the aggregate experience of the reactor staff and the recent trainees have had less opportunity to participate in refueling operations due to the pandemic. So why don't you just shut the damn thing down? Or is that too logical? That will be linked along with this article entitled, To Avoid Armageddon, Don't Modernize Missiles, Eliminate Them. This is written by Daniel Ellsberg, famous for his release of the Pentagon Papers, and Norman Solomon, who is executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and author of War Made Easy, as well as a co-founder of RootsAction.org. It calls for shutting down all of the nation's intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is 400 ICBMs that dot the rural landscapes of Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Missiles that are uniquely and dangerously on hair-trigger alert. According to former Defense Secretary William Perry, who's quoted in this article, If our sensors indicate that enemy missiles are en route to the United States, the president would have to consider launching ICBMs before the enemy missiles could destroy them. Once they are launched, they cannot be recalled. And the president would have less than 30 minutes to make that terrible decision. There is now a code pink petition to eliminate nuclear weapons from the Biden budget and it is meant to go to the House Appropriations Committee to defund nuclear weapons right now. We will have links up to the Ellsberg and Solomon article, as well as the Code Pink petition, which you can click on, go to, sign, and then pass along to your friends. All that will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 540. In Japan, that country's new prime minister, Fumio Kishida, has said that there can be no delay to plans to release contaminated water, that's radioactively contaminated water, from the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean, despite opposition from fishers and neighboring countries. The wastewater, which is pumped up from reactor basements and despite being treated still contains radioactive tritium, has built up at the site since the plant suffered the triple meltdown in March of 2011. More than 1 million tons of water are currently being stored in 1,000 tanks at the site. But TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has warned that space will run out late next year. They have been saying this every year for the past five years. It also is reported to contain 
63 additional radionuclides because the filtering system did not work fully to remove all radionuclides from the water. But Prime Minister Kishida has said that every effort would be made to reassure local people that disposing of water in the Pacific was safe. It doesn't mean it is safe, just that they're going to work to reassure the local population and, it would seem, the rest of the world with a there, there, missy, you don't worry your pretty little head about it tactic. However, protests to this plan just keep rolling in from around the world. South Korea will once again call for international discussions on Japan's plan to discharge this radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean. At this week's International Maritime Gathering, the London Convention and Protocol. South Korea has urged Japan to have in-depth discussions with neighboring countries before pushing ahead with the plan and has been working to garner international support for seeking alternatives. Whether because of these efforts by South Korea or on their own, China and eight Asia-Pacific island countries have raised a collective objection against this disposal of wastewater from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. The nine countries adopted a joint declaration following a meeting led by Beijing. Among the eight island countries that signed are Kiribati, Fiji, and Papua New Guinea. The European Commission will decide this fall if nuclear power will be classified as sustainable, when truly the only thing sustainable about it is the amount of radioactive waste it creates and the persistence of that waste at dangerous levels of radioactivity to life for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. But Finland has just lobbied the EU to declare nuclear power sustainable after an unpublished cabinet decision that was supported, believe it or not, by the Greens. If nuclear power gets the so-called green label, financing for nuclear projects will be easier to come by, and the terms of any loans will be softer than for other energy products, including those of genuinely sustainable technologies. While citing the oft-repeated lie that Nuclear energy produces no carbon emissions because it does at every step of the fuel chain except the split instant when the atom is split. There is no mention of the creation of radioactive waste. In the UK on October 22nd, there was a fire at the Sellafield nuclear site at a building associated with the Magnavox reprocessing plant. In what may or may not be a coincidence, just three days earlier, the Sellafield site conducted an emergency exercise that warned the local populace that it might involve the sounding of the site siren and the use of low-level pyrotechnics and blank firearms. Low-level pyrotechnics? Three days later, a fire? Hmm. Interesting. You might have noticed that there are a lot of articles that I'm linking to this week because so many of them are out. And that's because the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, begins on Sunday, October 31st. So some of the strongest and most persuasive articles are just coming out now. Here are some more on international issues. Michael Schneider, publisher of Schneider's World Nuclear Status Report 2021, 
said that the governments of Britain, Canada, China, Russia, and the United States are wasting time and money on plans for what he calls fantasy PowerPoint designs of small modular nuclear reactors that could never be built in time to save humanity from the climate crisis. Schneider points out that paper designs are cheap until they're actually being built. The average construction time for new reactors was 10 years after the first concrete has been poured, not including planning and the licensing processes, which took much longer. In other words, while solar and wind technologies, which are genuinely renewable, are ready to go out of the box, anything nuclear is going to take a minimum of 10 plus years And small, modular nuclear reactors don't even have a design that has been proven yet, so it's going to be taking much longer. Dr. Jim Green, who is National Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth Australia, echoes that point in his article, Small Nuclear Reactors, Huge Costs. Green, great name for a nuclear campaigner, cites a new report published by the country's most influential coal lobby, on the subject of small modular nuclear reactories and labels it jiggery-pokery of the highest order. Possibly one of my favorite new phrases because it means deceitful or dishonest behavior in UK slang. He goes on to explain that the coal industry's idea behind promoting nuclear power is that it will slow the transition from fossil fuels to renewables and believes that promoting nuclear is in the interest of some of the coal industries companies to slow transition to other forms of energy production. In a second article, entitled Organized Crime Goes Nuclear, Green writes that serious insider sabotage has hit major nuclear countries in recent years, mentioning fraud, counterfeiting, bribery, corruption, sabotage, theft, and other criminal activities that are rife in the global nuclear industry. He includes a lot of corroborating information in the article. Beyond Nuclear published an article on Poland's nuclear folly that was translated from the Polish and reports that the Polish ruling Law and Justice Party has created an official energy document called the Polish Energetic Policy and it announces the construction of six nuclear power units by 2043 in Poland. This from the country that was first to detect and report to the world on the Chernobyl disaster. And a joint statement by International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War and its affiliates in Australia, the UK, and USA announced their agreement that for Australia to acquire nuclear-powered submarines with UK and US assistance could jeopardize global health and security. Australia would become the seventh country to use nuclear propulsion for its military vessels and the first state to do so which does not possess nuclear weapons or nuclear power reactors. Links to all these articles will be up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 540. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, nuclear weapons, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, so-called permissible radiation exposures, the list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as the dangers of plutonium, which remains highly radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet, despite the known risks, this industry perpetuates itself 
making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, to help you know what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide them on an ongoing basis so you get context and continuity and can understand the full picture. We also provide a healthy dose of skepticism, as well as humor whenever and wherever possible. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back, as you will hear in today's interview, and how any one of us, yes, even you sitting right there at your computer, can take an action towards stopping the nuclear madness. But in order to keep going, we need your help. So if you like Nuclear Hot Seat's mission and the information we make available to you every week, here's what you can do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. That's where you can help us with a donation of any amount, and you can also set up a recurring donation for as little as $5 a month. Here in the U.S., that's the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip. So if you value the work that Nuclear Hot Seat does, do what you can now. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. It's one of my favorite interviews from the first 10 years of Nuclear Hot Seat, and it's offered this week with sadness. Sister Megan Rice passed away on October 10 at the age of 91. She was a Roman Catholic nun who was arrested more than 40 times for protesting America's military-industrial complex. Sister Megan is best known for breaking into the Y-12 complex at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, one of the world's largest uranium storage sites. It's a maximum security site. So how maximum is that security? Y-12 has some 500 security officers authorized to use lethal force within its protective area. It has five Bearcat armored vehicles, Gatling guns that can fire up to 50 rounds per second and shoot down aircraft, video cameras, motion detectors for perimeter fences, and rows of dragon's teeth, which are low pyramid-shaped blocks of concrete that can rip the axles off approaching vehicles and bring them to a dead stop. Thus, it was extremely embarrassing that on July 28, 2012, One diminutive octogenarian nun and two other anti-nuclear activists, Greg Borcha Obed and Michael Wally, both over 55 years old, were able to hike over a steep ridge, use simple bolt cutters to get through three rings of barbed wire, and walk, stroll perhaps, into Y-12's newest storage building, a windowless white concrete hulk that had been billed as the Fort Knox of Uranium. These three were not spotted by security for almost 30 minutes after they arrived, during which time they splashed blood against the walls and spray-painted slogans like The Fruit of Justice is Peace and Woe to an Empire of Blood. They lit candles and read an indictment against the American nuclear arsenal. And when a security guard finally did show up, they broke a loaf of bread and offered him a piece, which he refused. 
It's no wonder that an extremely embarrassed government threw the book at these three activists, charging them with not only trespassing and destruction and depredation of government property, but sabotage, a felony with a penalty of up to 20 years in prison. Sister Rice and the others served just over two years before being released after an appeals court vacated the sabotage convictions. I originally spoke with Sister Megan Rice on May 25, 2012, immediately after she was released from prison, and there is no better commemoration for her life than hearing her own words. Sister Megan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. First of all, did you know that your case was in the process of being reviewed by the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals? And were you in any way expecting that the sabotage ruling against you was going to be taken away? I certainly knew it was happening. And I can only say common sense would say that's what would have to happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, anything we're always ready for every surprise in this country and common sense is not necessarily the most common thing we have so it was great news that was received by people throughout internationally our community when you learned of the court's decision what was your reaction i wasn't all that excited because i really expected that that would happen i found out at three in the morning i was listening to the bbc and it was just a tiny little announcement of, at the end of a six- or seven-minute uh, summary of the world news. And it just said in a statement that, you know, the naming us all are, are given immediate release. Well, let's take this back to how the action started. This has been credited or at least been mentioned in connection with something called Transform Now Plowshares. Is that a group? Is that a movement? Tell us a bit about what that is. Since about 1980, starting with Father Dan Berrigan, brother Bill Berrigan, started the Plowshares Movement, which has done many, many actions, direct actions to expose the illegality and the immorality that we all know in our hearts of, of nuclear weapons. And so each of the actions, I'm not sure of the number in my head, but it's certainly more than 30, but I don't know, has a special name, just like every battleship has a special name. And so the last one, which happened on the 2nd of November, 2009, in Kipsap, Bangor, Trident Submarine Base, was called Disarm Now. And it came to me that, okay, what's the next step? You know, part of the process, the main process of disarming is not to deplete the planet and stop, end all the jobs for people, but to transform the whole thing into what we need. So the word transformation just came. So uh, the next step after disarming, or really part of it, is transform now into life-enhancing alternatives. How was the determination made that you would target the Y-12 uranium depository at Oak Ridge? That was the research that we were doing 
mainly at that point, Greg and I, we were moving from community to community. He lived in Duluth, and so we went east. We had to go east anyway, and we stopped in Kansas City, which was the place where they were making all the non-nuclear parts to nuclear weapons, uh, for other words, continuing the proliferation of nuclear weapons. They were willing to do something for August 2012, so we didn't need to do anything there. Then we moved on eastward and consulted with the peace movements all along the way in communities that were there. We got up to Maine even, to Bangor, I mean to um, near Portland, you know, Bath. And uh, that was another submarine carrier manufacturing place. And then we moved down, and we realized that the one that hadn't had a good direct action was Oak Ridge. We wanted to have something for 2012, August 6th and August 9th, you know, something around that time to remember 68 years ago. You, Michael, and Greg took several symbolic actions on the site. How did you determine what those actions were and what they would symbolize? It was very easy. I mean, these are the same symbols that have been used, and we've meditated on them and understood them. I started being connected with Jonah House after my mother died, in, and I was there in 1999 and 2000 when a an action was going on. So I was there to reflect and pray with that community and be instructed by Phil Berrigan and Liz and the people living there. And I understood fully, and the same way with Greg, he was living there. We understood the importance of those symbols of exterminating uh, sacred life. So the sacred symbol of life certainly is blood. And to show that to the workers without having to say anything was very educative and renouncing and denouncing and exposing nuclear weapons or any crime. We're all invited, humanly speaking, we must expose and oppose crimes against humanity. How supportive was your order as you were making these plans and going into this action? When I came back from Africa, I asked where I felt I could, you know, work best in this country. And I had been to the nuclear test site in Nevada 20 years before. This is 2003 and four now, really mainly 2004. And I realized that they needed somebody in Nevada. So I was allowed to do community work there and help out with that peace movement for the next six, seven years. But I was then realizing that was nuclear testing and the action at Kipsack Bangor in the state of Washington had made me see, was two years later, that nothing really had happened. So we were ready to, to make another message. And so I asked to be able to focus just on nuclear weapons for a year. And they were very, very supportive of that. And I, I didn't have to say what I was doing. We are an order with whose charism or whose mission is to meet the wants of the age. And we have been studying what are the wants of the age since we began 
encouraged by our founders, Cornelia Connolly, in 1846. So we've been constantly searching to meet the wants of the age. And I could see that this couldn't be a more important want of the age to meet, to try to meet. Let's take this into the action itself. At the point that you were dropped off and you were facing that chain link fence as you were about to go in, what were your thoughts? What were your feelings? Were you scared? Was this a profound moment? Did you pray beforehand? How did this get started? We had like an eight-day retreat before that in the area of Knoxville with the people who were very happy to be part of this designing and shaping of what would happen. And just the wonderful grace of energy uh, in our shared prayer through the eight days. And we had known from satellite, whatever, I didn't have to worry about that, exactly what and where. And so we were dropped off, not in front of the chain link fence, but before the woods, you know, we were able to mount the ridge, which is Oak Ridge, in the dark. And we just followed and we just walked through, no path or anything. We just headed to the top, winding our way. And obviously we were led. And then we finally, after about two hours going up, we reached in. I wasn't even thinking about being afraid because we were getting through and nobody was stopping us. And um, we could look down on this. It was probably 4.30, so before dawn. And we just were able to move right on down. And we were inside the three, well, first the outer fence was still in the woods. That didn't take any time. And we closed it up, you know, with little plastic ties. Very short, um, right angle, two sides of a triangle, so that we could slip through with a flap. And uh, we were all rather thin people, and it was very easy. And then we got to the top of the ridge and looked over, and then we just kept on going. We saw a bat security car just drove by. We saw it drive back, and then we just started and got to the first of the last three fences. Couldn't have been five minutes to get through one. Nothing was electrocuting us. We just moved on and got through three and we were there by quarter to five, and I had looked, the last time I looked at my watch, it was quarter to five. And we did exactly what we knew we were going to do, totally unheated, unimpeded. And uh, it took maybe ten minutes, maybe, you know, you didn't look at your clock, but not long at all. And then we had finished the three or four things we planned to do quietly, not having any, uh, just we were all very focused. And then this way down at the opposite end of the building, which is very long, this van that had been driving around the roadway before drove right next to the building, probably 25, 30 feet inside the last fence, I guess. I don't really remember. I mean, I couldn't measure exactly. And anyway, it drove very slowly up to us, and we were ready to meet it. And we bowing before them. It was just that one man. Kirk Garland, and we read, he was willing to listen to our, we just were ready to read to him why we were there, and that is available, and I hope people know that. We wrote that during the retreat, in the eight days before. 
given a link to it, I will definitely post it up on the website in connection with this episode so that people can actually read what you said. The two things that we brought in were the statement, and then the second one was the indictment, a list of what laws were being infringed by continuing the manufacture, testing, use, and storage of nuclear weapons. So it sounds like rather than what has been reported that you were there for two hours before a guard showed up, that it was really a relatively short period of time. That was It's always, uh, yeah, I find that it's just a mistake. We landed on the downside of the ridge probably, I think it was by 2 or 2.30. So we, we were looking at it by 4.30. Okay, so it could be like two hours to get up the hill. But the actual action itself, it sounds like it took maybe 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, I, at certainly 20 at the outset at the most. Anybody could have done it in that little time. How did the guard respond when he suddenly came upon the three of you on this site? Yeah, well, it wasn't all that sudden. It was slow. He responded just by looking at us. We could hear him saying on the phone, his cell phone, they're peace protesters. You better send somebody along, something like that. He was very, he had known that we were peace. It was most obvious that we were peace protesters. And um, he, he had had that experience. He had been at Rocky Flats for many years and then somewhere else. And, you know, you can always tell when they're peace protesters. How were you treated by the authorities when they did show up? I felt that they were, I mean, there was this, the second person was nervous and had his gun and this and that, but it was very gently. We were handcuffed and told to sit on the ground, and which we did. You know, this is now 5.15, 5.30. took a little while for the more vans to come. And we were on the ground with our hands cuffed at the back, with our ankles cuffed from then on. You know, we watched the sun come up. People gradually, you know, like undressed, because it was Saturday morning. Those that were higher up in the line of the marshals uh, spoke very politely to us. You don't, you, do you want to answer some questions? You don't have to without your lawyer kind of thing. And then we sat there. You know, it wasn't until maybe 10 o'clock they brought three collapsible chairs, but we would stand up, you know, just because it was stiff and all that, and they had to help me get up. You know, you'd stand maybe every 20 minutes for five minutes or something like that. It took them all that time to get their act together, in other words. You were initially charged with misdemeanor trespass. And then suddenly the charges were up to damaging a defense facility under the Sabotage Act, which carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. And there was also the charge of causing more than $1,000 damage to government property, which carries up to 10 years in prison. Why do you think the charges against you were so dramatically increased in their severity? Obviously, they didn't want a trial. They thought we would try to get out easily with a plea bargain. Oh, was that the strategy? Uh, oh, absolutely. They always want plea bargains. Was there any question in your minds 
about taking the plea bargain no and question along. At, no possibility of a question and what did you hope to accomplish with the trial and the resulting disability to doing what we had to do it's the obligation of every we're all equally responsible to expose and oppose known crimes so there was nothing else we could do but do it in order to make a very clear message quickly i know you take your ministry with you wherever you go and you ended up spending over two years in prison what was it like for you in there, and what sort of work were you able to do or were you moved to do with the women who you met there? I would say I was more minister to than ministering. With ministry, we believe, is totally shared. It's a giving and a sharing and a receiving, and none of those can be exaggerated in order to be harmoniously accomplished. And it happened to me. I received as much as I shared, as much as I gave. We always say in West Africa, go by opposites when you're in the reality of the thing. Nobody could imagine what the reality is until we experience it. And I have been overawed by amazingly strong and gifted women and um uh, some compassionate men, there were not many for me to interact with, but some were very respectful and uh, interacting that way. But, of course, we, I was fellow inmates. And I also had a lot of time to interact with the world because I did try to respond in some way to everybody who has written, either by a joint letter, because people need to be honored. I mean, everybody is involved in this, and Equally, whether they're writing letters, whether they're sitting at home with their arthritis, or whether they're just, you know, sending the energy through prayer to harmonize and heal the world. And it's just part of that grand scheme of, of healing the planet of its wounds and being healed, of course. In this time between your release and the fact that you're going to still have to go back to court for resentencing sometime this summer on the one remaining charge. What are your plans for this period of time before you find out finally whether they are going to put you back in jail or whether they're just going to declare time served and let you go? I haven't had time to do any planning. My time has been taken up and programmed by something ever since we were released last Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. So I just followed the, what was the next call, for, you know, the next day, what, what had emerged. I had a remote plan. I knew that I could, you know, get a medical checkup immediately and then some recommendations in the same building to see whatever I needed, slight checkups, which were very, very minor and everything is very mild, and I don't have anything to worry about. You know, it's just very practical things. So I'm just staying nearby and, and doing, accomplishing those things and trying to respond to telephone calls from people like you. We haven't even had a chance to talk to each other, Mike and Greg, you know, because Greg was in transit, and, and there just hasn't been time for me to dial them and nor them to dial me. 
Were you in contact at all during the time that you were imprisoned? Not really, really. We were meant to be, but Greg got his paperwork done coming from Leavenworth, but each of the places where I was just didn't respond to it. I definitely had a, we had a right to be in touch with each other, but we couldn't. They never came and told me it's okay to do it. In your mind, where would you like your action to lead? What do you want to happen now? And given that the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat are international, we have 38 countries that listen to this show on a monthly basis, Mm. what can we do to support you in where you want this to go next? I don't think that I'm seeking support for me. There's only one thing to do, and that is anybody who is available and free and carrying on with what they're all doing to expose and oppose nuclear weapons of mass destruction. And and I see that people have each has their own gifts of creativity, their own style of doing it, and I totally honor, I'm going to say you, and I'm speaking to all the people that you're in network with, and thank you, and just carry on and continue to see how we can make this message you know, more, you know, and just react to the uh, denial of the Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference, uh, you know, the review that just ended on Friday, and let's support uh, the ray of hope there, the, the countries that are just getting out of that thing because they failed. New York Times doesn't even mention what was happening at the U.N. for the last month. So we all need to get in touch with the people who are involved in these international treaties and what can we do? How can we speak out? Because we are the majority. We're not the minority. Sister Megan Rice, you are one of my heroes. I am honored to be speaking with you. I support you, and if there's anything I can do to help you in the future, please do not hesitate to let me know. You're doing it, dearie. You're on it. So we, this is a mutually assured um, admiration society. Should we say that? Thank you so much for that. Sister Megan Rice, you are a hero to so many of us, and I am deeply honored that we have been able to spend this time together on Nuclear Hot Seat. Bless you, dearie, and uh, divert to the to what you're doing. You're doing a great job, and thank you. Her words meant a great deal to me. That was the late, great Sister Megan Rice, who passed away on October 10, 2021, of congestive heart failure. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, has published a new report entitled Why NATO Members Should Join the UN Ban on Nuclear Weapons. The 116-page report proposes that NATO take steps to become a non-nuclear alliance in line with the new norm set by the United Nations. Further, Those NATO members that are ready to join the TPNW, as it's referred to, the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, should be free to do so without fear of repercussions from their allies, particularly the United States, 
France, and the United Kingdom, which still possess nuclear arsenals. The report highlights the widespread support for the TPNW within many NATO states, as evidenced by public opinion polls, parliamentary resolutions, political party declarations, and statements from past leaders. It also notes that NATO members face no legal barriers to joining the treaty, so long as they commit not to engage in or support any nuclear weapons-related activities. We will link to PDF copies of this report in three different languages, English, French, and German. They'll be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 540-540. And for those of you who want to do something in your personal life to take funding away from the nuclear industry, here is our brief interview with Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. She tells you about a program that you can use in your personal life to strip the money out of the nuclear industry. And it's not only you. By sharing this information, it will reverberate within your banking institutions, with your financial planner, and with pension funds, as well as in any community, religious, or social groups you frequent. Just talk about it. The goal is to starve the money out of companies that make and make money from manufacturing any portion of the nuclear weapons chain. Here to explain it in two very fast-spoken minutes is Susie Snyder. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments... Go public, because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons, modernization, and maintenance. And it's on our website, uh, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb. We will have a link up to their website. Amazingly enough, it's called don'tbankonthebomb.com. That's where you can find a list of the 28 companies that currently build nuclear weapons and links to all the footnotes that your financial advisors will want to read to understand exactly what is at stake here. It's on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 540. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, neis.org, nirs.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or icanw.org, 
Cleveland19.com, theecologist.org, physicstoday.citation.org, newsandguts.com, trib.com, thenation.com, codepink.org, theguardian.com, en.yna.co.kr, yle.fi, gov.uk, whitehavennews.co.uk, reneweconomy.com.au, theenergymix.com, thebulletin.org, independent.co.uk, and the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Every episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is just packed full of information about nuclear matters that you're not likely to find in most other places. Or you might find a bit here and a bit there. We bring it all together. So, of course, you want to make certain that you get the show every week. And it's easy for you to do so. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, fill in your first name and an email address, and bam, you're in our database. We will send you the episode every week with a brief description of what's in it, and we will not sell your information, share your information. We won't even bug you with a whole bunch of email. Just one a week. And because you are on the ground, wherever you are, with whatever you're facing in a nuclear way, and it's right there, you probably have information that I don't. And I want that information. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember... If you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment and go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, click on it, follow the prompts. Hey, anything will help, and we always appreciate your support. I know we have listeners around the world. We're up to 124 countries where Nuclear Hot Seat has been downloaded and listened to, so don't be shy. Let me know what's going on. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi, and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that in the words of Sister Megan Rice, none of us is out of prison as long as one nuclear bomb exists. If that's not a nuclear wake-up call, I don't know what is. So your assignment, should you decide to accept it, is to not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.